I cannot describe with words what it means to have an instrument who is capable of everything. So much more of what I'm capable to ask. And sometimes, particularly in a new musical relationship like the one with John Williams, where the new repertoire asks also for you know different colors and a different treatment of the instrument. I'm astounded, endlessly astounded, that this Strat from 1710 holds it all. It's, it's like a book full of miracles. It's a humbling experience because I know that the violin will survive me and I can only hope that someone after I have passed away is loving and caring for the instrument as much as I do. Violinist Anne-Sophie Mutter is one of the world's preeminent virtuoso classical soloists. For 40 years, the German performer has thrilled audiences, collaborated with composers and won enough prizes for her trophy cabinet to resemble a small, glittering country in its own right. Mutter has unsurprisingly left her mark on the great classical repertoire while having scores of original works written for her, from the likes of André Previn to John Williams. She's had a decades-long love affair, of course, with her violin, a Stradivarius of impeccable heritage, about which we'll hear later. I'm Robert Bounds, and I spoke to Miss Mutter back in March, ahead of a concert with the London Philharmonic Orchestra, celebrating the 250th anniversary of Beethoven's birth. Welcome to the big interview, and Sophie Mutter. Lovely to have you um, Thank you here. For me. Tomorrow, you uh, take to the stage at the Royal Festival Hall here yes. in London. How does that concert differ from all the thousands of other concerts that you've played? How do you approach playing Beethoven's Triple Concerto? Mm -hmm tomorrow night as opposed to any other night. I've just recorded it, re-recorded it after 40 years again with Yo-Yo Ma mm -hmm. and with the wonderful Daniel Barnbaum as a conductor and a pianist. And that, of course, was an incredibly memorable musical collaboration. And tomorrow evening, I will play the triple concerto with Katja Bunyatishvili, one of my favorite pianists, and Pablo Ferrandes, one of the world's greatest young cellists. Mm -hmm. He's also a scholar of my foundation. So this is a totally different musical setting. I'm very excited about this combination, particularly also to work with Katja only for the second time. And we have a great musical and also human rapport. So it's, it's particularly exhilarating and inspiring to play with different musicians, the same uh -huh. repertoire, you know. And I'm greatly looking forward to renew my musical ties with the LPO. I have played with these fabulous musicians in Mozart cycle. I did a recording of all the Mozart violin concerti without a conductor. And that would not have been possible if not for the leadership qualities of every single player of the LPO. And uh, Robin Ticciati, who is leading the program, is really one of the most interesting and versatile and most wonderful young conductors. So really, I couldn't be happier. So there's a bit of the jollity of a united sort of yes, friendship group. That's, definitely. That's good. Yeah. Does stuff like that bear itself out in the playing with yourself oh, and Yo-Yo Ma and, and, yeah. and an orchestra that you know? Will an audience member with a honed ear be able yep. to hear friendship in those notes? I think they will hear also because that sounds a little strange, but also because <laughs> the cellist and the violinist we play by memory. Yeah. And just so also the physical interaction and, you know, looking at each other and really literally taking musical phrases out of each other's brains and hands is much different if you don't have, you know, a score in between. And I think the spontaneity also comes into play more. How does that work? You say that there are moments of spontaneity. Yes. You're playing with repertoire that's 220 years yep. old. Mm -hmm. How far off Beethoven's yep. well-founded rails can yep. you go as a soloist? Yeah. I think the wonderment lies in the details. 
the triple concerto is one of Beethoven's more festive, more sunny pieces, if you want to use that word. Mm -hmm. It was written in the in his middle period, actually in a period after he had wrote the Heiligenstädter Testament, where he struggles with life, with his beginning deafness, with his destiny of, of course, he was aware of turning deaf. And what that meant in society, people talking behind his back, him not being able to hear it anymore. How would he go about his composing with only hearing music in his inner ear? He was thinking about taking his life, struggling with God, with his future. So really the middle period is already maybe more heroic, but also more dramatic in his manner, in his musical manner, but also with great tenderness. Mm. He he explores great tenderness, which you can hear between the three instruments in the second movement, for example, where the cello, who has a very leading part, it's, it's probably the only, yeah, it's not probably, but it's the only cello concerto with violin and piano Beethoven has written. So the cello introduces the theme of the second movement and then the piano is coming in and accompanying actually the winds who have the melody and then uh, the cello is joined by the violin. So you don't have to go really astray and change tempis or willfully change what Beethoven has written in terms of pandemic, but there's so much underneath the surface yeah. in the small all gestures that actually are an entire cosmos in themselves. I mean, I feel like I'm listening to it, mm -hmm. hearing you talk about it. Mm -hmm. And obviously, you have a deep knowledge of your favourite composers. How important is the biography of Beethoven mm -hmm. to playing his music or any composer? It is very helpful to yeah. know. And of course, in Beethoven's life, his human relationships with his nephew and uh, relationships with women, relationships with friends for whom he had written pieces. I mean, let's think of the Archduke uh, Rudolf, who was one of his most important mentors and friends. Knowing about that is shaping your understanding of where to place the pieces. But, you know, the pieces by themselves. I'm very grateful for Beethoven to have written continuously throughout his lifespan for violin. He has written his first string trio. Uh, this was an opus three and already uh, exemplary in terms of really throwing overboard what Haydn had left as the perfect measurement for uh, that, you know, group of free players. And he's presenting a trio which has five movements. It's totally revolutionary. And he was the first composer who would also apply Sforzandi and the Subito Pianis. And he would really push music to the edge. Obviously, also the performer to the edge of the emotional, you know, possibilities and yeah. the abruptness of change of, of colors and of hot and cold and loud and soft is just totally tremendous. So going back to Beethoven and his treatment for the violin. So it's Opus 3, the string trio. And then, you know, he goes on, Opus 12, the early sonatas, very Haydn-esque. And then you have Opus 23, 24, you have 30, you have 47, the Kreutzer. What I'm aiming at is you don't need to read a biography. You just need to read what he it's has. There in the notes. You know, it's there in the notes. And of course, it is in the relationship between the symphonies and Fidelio, also in the middle period of his life, the violin concerto, the triple concerto. And then, you know, his late string quartets. That's something I'm dreaming of since I'm a, a young <laughs> music student to finally in my life as a soloist come around that repertoire. And I have, um, I have started now, I'm starting now in the Beethoven year to play some of his quartets. And uh, I'm preparing now with uh, fabulous members of the LPO, the harp quartet, which is also a middle 
period piece uh, by Beethoven. And I hope that I can bring that to, uh, if not any, you know, major health crisis is, is coming, you know, in the middle, then we will play it to a later stage. So it would be a trio by Beethoven, the harp quartet. And, you know, the last pieces Beethoven had written are actually a string quartet. So... I'm very grateful to be able as a violinist to see his development as, you know, from the young man to the really extremely visionary composer who has left quartets we still wonder and try to decipher, wonder about in terms of harmonic structure and, you know, where he wants to go with it. It still is a miracle and mesmerizing and big playground for many wonderful quartet players and yeah. we don't have a solution but we just are intrigued by it i love the fact that the biography is there in the notes you can only discover yeah the the truth of beethoven yeah. by playing it not, by, by you may not, you know, yeah. reliving it really and yeah. playing more than the notes because the notes you know sofia gubaidulina the wonderful mm -hmm. um, um, living composer from kazan uh, the tatar republic of kazan she wrote her second violin concerto for me which is called in tempos presence and she she explained how she composes it i think that's probably not in the process of composing but what It means for her to have to scribble down what she hears in her inner ear. She says she hears this gigantic, like an Urknall, you know. <laughs> and, and then she has to decipher and write it down because the music, as she writes it down, escapes her memory. But the, the kind of sad part is she says what she writes down is only a shadow of what she has heard. And for some of her ideas, there is not even an instrument invented yet. So it is... Beware your bow. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. But it's like freeze-dried, yeah. you know, freeze-dried stuff. And you have somehow to bring it up to its, its splendor. And it takes more than just playing the notes because the notes is just a vague kind of roadmap. Mm -hmm. But, well, uh, and talking no. of that, the, yes. the repertoire and the different between repertoire and new music, you've waxed poetic, as it is easy to do on Beethoven, not necessarily always as poetically as you, though, but a composer that you've worked with a lot who's producing new music still, John Williams. Oh, What's, wow. I mean, I always wondered what is, it was like. Yeah. It's so different, but sort of not, yeah. not so in many ways. No, what is it exactly. like working yeah. with a composer yeah. of, of great renown yes. on new, new music? What are they doing to you yeah. as a great player, as a great yeah. soloist? Are they trying to take a sports car for a drive? What are they do? do you know what I mean? <laughs> yes, yeah. Understand. They're trying to test you, aren't yeah. they? Oh, definitely. And every time I'm like, you know, as small as a fly, if at all that <laughs> tall... I remember when I first played for Mrs. Kubaidulina, oh my God, it was like I was drenched in sweat after playing for her. It, that is really the moment of truth because with a new piece, uh, there is no reference, which is great. That's why I love new pieces. But of course, you're also on the edge of guessworking your way mm -hmm. toward the, uh, or inward this language. So you never quite know if your guesswork, you are delving into it, getting under the skin of the composition is totally off and the composer is going to laugh at you, send you home or worse. I love you to be sent home. That's uh... You know, Karin has once sent me home when I was a young girl. Right? Yes, with the Beethoven concerto. I already knew it because I was uh, 14 and he was under the impression <laughs> I had to learn it and I just felt totally inadequate. But anyhow, so I went there. He wanted me to play it for him and, you know, I'm just playing merely 20 bars and he's looking up from his score and tells me, hmm, come back next year. So <laughs> off I went. And I used to be a fly on the wall. <laughs> that recording studio. I, I came back and we recorded it and blah, blah. But 
John Williams. Yeah. So that is one of the really superbly great moments in my life because uh, I grew up in the Black Forest and uh, when Star Wars came to the Black Forest, it came to the Black Forest, oh, wonderment, in 1978, <laughs> I was in the cinema, of course. And that score just totally blew me away. And of course, when I go to the cinema, I also have eyes and I'm watching the movie, but I'm too much musician not to you know, watch with my ears. <laughs> There's an elbow going so, <laughs> on in the second row. Okay. <laughs> so what really s stuck with me all these uh, decades was the score. And I became a fan of John Williams and uh, I watched many movies. I was not necessarily like E.T. I was not necessarily interested in, you know, E.T. itself, but in the music. So and then about six years ago, I, I, I met this genius composer and... Uh, if I have learned one thing in my life is to overcome my shyness because, uh, for example, Tak Takemitsu. Mm -hmm. I would have loved to have a violin concerto by Takemitsu, but I was too shy to ask. So I learned from that and I'm blazing forward now. And whenever <laughs> I see a composer, I really adore. I, I I take the risk of being turned down. And actually, he wasn't so smitten with my... Uh, <laughs> With my question, if he, you know, possibly one day would write a few bars for me. And he was, he's always terribly busy. But at that time, he had another production with Spielberg and, of course, better things to do. So he very charmingly said, yes, maybe one day, but at the moment and so on and so forth. And as he likes to tell the story, apparently I, I sent him, it's true that I sent him cookies, but really not in order to pressure oh, him. Oh, come on. That is, that's unforgivable. <laughs> But, so we but, all know how to get on in life now. It's cookies. <laughs> yes, okay. cookies. Okay. So German. It must be German gingerbreads. Okay. Anyhow, he took it very charmingly and wrote me back and said, you know, for these 20 cookies, I better write for you now 20 bars of music. He drives a hard bargain as well. <laughs> yes. Okay. So this is how our musical collaboration started with Markings, a very beautiful short piece mm -hmm. for violin and chamber orchestra and harp, which has been premiered in Tanglewood, I think, some three years ago. And as a fan also of his life as a, as a film composer, I asked if he could rewrite a few of his um, tunes from Star Wars, mainly Princess Leia and Across the Stars. And so he did. And it grew and grew and grew. And he wrote and wrote and wrote. And, you know, now we have about 16 great titles. And he just gave his debut in Vienna with the Vienna Philharmonic. And, mm -hmm. of course, people stood on their heads. I've never seen anyone, <laughs> including Karajan, being being that welcomed and that enthusiastically with standing ovation. I mean, this man comes to the hall, people get up. He's conducting, you know, one-shot piece, people get up. It, it the, the concert, which usually takes two hours to three hours. And what it is for me, which is so fascinating, also with John Williams, I, previous to our recording last year for Across the Stars, I, of course, went to California to rehearse with him, all the pieces I had prepared. And we had three intense days with the pianist going through all these uh, idiomatically also so different uh, pieces of music. Mm -hmm. You know, think of uh, Remembrances from Schindler's List. And then you have Geisha. Then you have Dracula, totally different. Then you have The Duel from Tintin, his first animation movie with Spielberg. Then you have Star Wars with this heroic French horn. I'm now suddenly supposed to sound like a heroic French horn. Then you have Hedwig from Harry Potter. And there is this the iconic beginning and I'm supposed to sound like a celeste, you know, this kind of very glass-ish, um, um, pale, transparent, non-vibrato sound. And, and it, till this moment is such a, an inspirational task 
to slip into these different cultures of musical language and and sounds and emotions. On that note, you've got you've got a kind of set text when you're playing with John Williams, yes. and it's something from Star Wars. It's Harry Potter, yep. Memoirs of a Geisha, something like that. You've got the set text. You've got the movie that yep. you can refer to. Yep. I wonder I, if that helps yeah. or hinders the playing, or whether yeah. you need to get in a, into a different space to play the music. Yeah, of course. Uh, when I play things like like uh, Harry Potter, I do you know have glimpses of memories when I went with my children. Uh, because that that's these are very personal family mm-hmm. memories but actually i've always found that john's music is like program music let's say it's like Scherzade or symphonie fantastique or it is music which stays very well alone you don't need the pictures definitely the movie needs his music but Does he it, his music doesn't yeah. need the movie so i don't have to think of the story of geisha in order to totally understand in which world we are no it, i suppose whether it's Beethoven, whether it's John Williams, yep. in a sense, the story is on the is in the notation. Absolutely, that's what it yeah. is in their musical language, in their understanding yeah. of the idiom for which they are writing. Um, how do you prepare? As we say, tomorrow night yep. you're going to be in London. You're traveling around Europe, yep. the world always. How do you prepare to, to, to before you go on stage yep. the day before you're in a city mm-hmm. or the day before you go I'm on stage? I'm giving an interview. <laughs> I wonder. Well, you're giving. You're yeah, doing I love this. to do that. <laughs> you're doing this with a big smile on her face. No, but I wonder. Are yeah. you? What What gets you into the atmosphere? Is it? Yeah. Is it actually going to an art gallery as opposed to yeah. taking your violin out and practicing? And, and that, that's a very good I wonder, point. I wonder how you get into the, yeah. the vibe that you want yeah. to. Probably art gallery or some really kind of super stimulating exciting stuff I wouldn't Mm. do on the day of a concert I've done that and that somehow although I love to do it but it's so inspirational that it takes focus away from the concert so I can do it the day before which was impossible today because I had literally the entire day rehearsals or the day after so on the day of the concert ideally you know there's the rehearsal in the morning and then, you know, more discussions maybe with my two colleagues. And then I will try to just take a long walk, rest a bit and get into the zone, hopefully. Yeah. But the sad part in my profession is maybe also for athletes, you can train as much as you want and do everything right. There is no recipe to really get the results you have worked so long and dreamed of so long. And that is a very humbling experience. I and must... also frustrating. Um... <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Sort the humility. I wonder if you can only play. Actually, this is a question. This is a question for soloists the world over, but it's a question for you, obviously. um, Whether you can only really play perfectly when you're performing. Do you have moments in the rehearsal room where Mm -hmm. you absolutely nail something or you reach a pitch Mm -hmm. of emotion, you become at one with the Mm -hmm. score, the music, Mm -hmm. the composer and all of their intentions? that you haven't matched on mm-hmm. a stage or does it always happen on stage at a higher pitch than you could ever hope for in a rehearsal room? Mm-hmm. In rehearsals, I think many of us, many of us musicians totally go for it and I love to do that. Mm-hmm. I have never understood musicians who kind of hold back to save it for the evening. Why? <laughs> you don't even know if there will be an evening, so just go for it. <laughs> and then the other thing is that I think we all need an audience, you know. Because, that's the thing, right? That's, yeah, because yeah. an empty room is quiet. Nobody coughs. That's great. But this kind of silence is much different when there are 2,000 people or 1,000 people or 500 people sitting in silence and in expectation of what is yet to come. It's like you're sending out waves and you need someone who is on your wavelength to receive. Yeah. And if that play comes into play, 
then anything is possible. That's amazing. I hoped that would be the answer, mm-hmm. that these things would come to fruition and yeah. all link up perfectly yeah. and that's the reason, in the public arena. Yeah, that's yeah. the reason why most of my recordings, including the, the triple concerto recording, Barenboim and Yo-Yo, is uh, live because mm-hmm. it just, I mean, going to the studio, what I dislike about the studio is that you can repeat. Mm-hmm. And in repetition lies, hmm, kind of also the death of spontaneity because then you get so... Hmm. I don't know. Your thirst for technical perfection takes over uh, the sense of liberating yourself musically and just uh-huh. diving into it. Yeah. You it's get almost too self-conscious. It's editing, right? You're editing yeah. everything. Yes. It's a bit like auto-tuning for a pop star. Yes. You kind of yeah. listen to it on the radio and it sounds perfect, but, yeah, but boringly The sweat so. is missing. The sweat is missing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so that's interesting. That idea of, of the sort of studio recording and the live recording. Mm-hmm. You've always tended towards the live recording. Definitely. Yes. And, and, and the kind of warts and all, or that's the kind of gold medal in the ice skating, right? That's where you go for that manoeuvre and it is the ultimate risk. Yes. If you can do it oh, yeah. at a live recording, then you're hitting the high notes. And if not, you also have to forgive yourself, you know, uh, if you have tried hard. You have to find a balance. I think going on stage is you have these two personas, the one which is controlling the situation, the architecture of the piece, and make sure you're not getting lost in all of that, not getting lost in the moment, but, you know, the narrative and, you know, where a phrase is going to. But the other, of course, is the one who wants to get lost and who wants to go for the risk. And finding finding the balance is, I think, what makes this profession so exciting yeah. because it's every evening, uh, you know, a different experience and you are never sure of the outcome. If you grew up in the Black Forest, you're never yep. going to get lost in a concert hall. <laughs> yeah, I would I'd get say. lost in the forest. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to ask you about your relationship with your instrument yes. and your instruments. They're valuable things that you must have an exceptionally intimate relationship mm-hmm. with. Mm-hmm. How would you describe that relationship? It must be yeah. like, I yeah. know you have children, but it must yeah. almost be akin to that, I have thought. Uh, yeah, I mean, children is, you know, having two children is actually the greatest gift of course. I have I have in my life. But having the privilege of playing and owning an instrument now already for 30, yeah, 37 years. Mm. Yep. It's just, I, I cannot describe with words what it means to have an instrument who is capable of everything so much more of what i'm capable to ask and sometimes particularly in a new musical relationship like uh, the one with john williams where the new repertoire asks also for you know different colors and a different treatment of the instrument i'm astounded endlessly astounded that this strat from 1710 holds it all it's it's like a book full of miracles. It's a humbling experience because I know that the violin will survive me and I can only hope that someone after I have passed away is loving and caring for the instrument as much as I do. Yeah, because it is like a it's you're a, you're it's a custodian a, of it, this it thing. Is, yeah, it's a part of me. And funnily enough, we know that neurologically the body, like in a tennis player, accepts the record as a part of the body. And really the violin, once she is on my shoulder, it's a total symbiotic relationship. Yeah, I mean, it's it's amazing to watch you on televised concerts to see you up close with that thing. Mm-hmm. It feels, yeah, like a, yeah, like another limb. Yeah, It's a moving thing. How do you treat it? 
when you're in a hotel or when you're in a when you're backstage mm-hmm. when you're at home yeah. where does it sit i'm not asking you for yeah. insurance purposes no 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 i i, mean, <laughs> I just wonder, i feel is, like it must have a very yeah. special place li- yeah literally. once i'm at home mm. you know it, she's always safe of mm-hmm. course but i have other things in life to attend to it's not that i'm you know <laughs> need to cling yeah. to my violin but i'm actually very grateful i mean don't laugh but i'm very grateful after a wonderful concert i'm just grateful to the instrument to mm. be so responsive and to my life in general because as a string player it is a special relationship it's different to a pianist not that a pianist wouldn't love to have a piano to travel around the world with but that's just not in the cards for most of them so they make due with having an instrument every evening and you know there is excitement in that as well but for a string player having a voice and being permitted to keep it for an extended period is is really what life is all about for us on stage do you know where yours, who the previous custodian of yes. yours was? You know, the interesting part is this Strad was also owned by Jelly Darani, for uh-huh. whom Ravel had written Zigan. And so when and I play... Not a bad track record. You know, the funny thing is when I play Zigan, it's like, you know, I just lean back and the violin seems to do it all by herself. It's, it's real fun. <laughs> and also, does it feel like that sometimes? Clearly... Mm-hmm. You are, you're an absolute great, but do you feel mm-hmm. like the violin is guiding you some nights? Well, you know, I love to play non-vibrato, yeah. where it seems musically appropriate. And in a non-vibrato, let's, let's take, go back to Beethoven, the epilogue of the first movement, which I play on the G string. And it's such a wonderful remembrance of what the theme once was. And I played senza vibrato, and so the violin actually speaks by herself. I'm just kind of using the bow but mm-hmm. it's it's totally the instruments speaking and that adds of course you know i had the most sensational moment in the library of congress in washington a few years ago because i was permitted to play on one of fritz kreisler's instruments and so they took it out of the vault and i'm playing on it and instantaneously i'm sounding like fritz kreisler <laughs> it was the freakiest <laughs> thing you know my sound had vanished and suddenly I, I was him because the violin has a mind of its own or a it's, muscle memory. It's amazing. It's amazing. So whoever gets my violin has to wrestle with me after that. Oh, wow. That. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, poor old Ben. You yes, know, can you imagine? Poor, poor, poor people. We talked before about your relationship with other players and yep. about orchestras as a whole. How does that work when it's an orchestra you don't know that well and you walk in mm-hmm. and you, you, mm-hmm. of great reputation? How do you... Do you have to do a little dance around with that orchestra to to kind of fit in or not yeah. to on purpose? How do you envelop yourself into an yeah. orchestra? I think music is great. It's a great lesson for life because mm. it's about listening. And while you're listening and commenting, musically speaking now, you are, of course, hearing what the answer is to your playing. And you take that into the equation and you change your viewpoint, let's say on a subject. I think that's very important actually mm-hmm. in life. And that's why I think music education is so important for children because it's a great education for life about leadership, being part of a group and listening while you're making up your next sentence. So that is the case when I play with a new orchestra. If I don't know them at all, then I'm particularly carefully listening. And then of course I do an extra effort if I'm not doing that already to inspire them. 
to get them off their chairs, to get them out of their shell and to really, really engage them. And by now, conductors are not upset with me if, if I talk <laughs> directly to the concertmaster and to some you know colleagues in the orchestra just to kind of speed up the process of because it's a joint venture. I wanted to ask you finally mm-hmm. whether on most nights you play, whether it is the music itself, the notes that Beethoven wrote down 200-odd years ago, or whether it is the collegiate, sympathetic, kind of symphonic nature of the orchestra mm-hmm. that moves you, that spurs you on. You know this West East Divan Orchestra idea yes. of Daniel Barenboim, yeah. which now goes into its 21st year this year, is something which I find extremely valuable and moving because it shows us in a small scale what is possible that people who have been told that they're enemies, you know, they find out, oh, you know, my neighbor has exactly the same wishes and dreams and obviously also rights and feelings as I have. Uh, I would wish that there would be more music. And I see the place in music is not being a nice pastime or a hobby or an event. I think music is really the glue which keeps people together or should keep people together and bring us closer because it's totally Mm non-judgmental. No no matter what cultural background you have, uh, what you believe in in life, once you sit in a concert, we all feel the same and it transcends our bodies. And I believe that on this beautiful blue planet, we can only survive if we understand that we all, you know, what happens to you happens to me and that we all need to... Maybe not in times of coronavirus get too close together, <laughs> but, you know, we need empathy for yeah. each other. And music is this wonderful bond between us where we don't even have to study it in order to understand it. No, it's one of those rare things. No. the rare art form where we yeah. don't have to know it to yeah, love it. It just immerses us and sweeps us off our feet. Do you sometimes just wish you were in the audience? I'm quite happy where I am. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, we'll mostly agree with that. And Sophie Mutter, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much. It's a great pleasure. My thanks to Anne-Sophie Mutter, whose latest release, John Williams in Vienna, is released next week on August the 14th. Please make an appointment to tune in to next week's edition of The Big Interview too. It was produced and edited by Yolien Goffin and Steph Chongu. I've been Robert Bounds, and thank you very much for tuning in.